Okay, we are on our last series on uh, having a passion for God and with the mood this morning, I'm glad everyone's real passionate and excited this morning. So uh, over in Europe, there's a group of people standing outside one of the, the large cathedrals. You know, they have the huge, massive cathedrals that are over there, you know, that have been there for hundreds of years, took hundreds of years to build some of them. And uh, this group of tourists were out there staring at this one with all its stained glass and its artwork and its intricate detail and all the love and care and symbolism that went into making this cathedral. And uh, looking at it, it was such a fine and wonderful place to serve God. You can just, you know, just you're kind of overwhelmed with its majesty. And one of the tourists turned to the other group and said, man, why can't we build something like this today? We just have our skyscrapers and there's nothing ornate, especially with God. Why can't we have the same kind of craftsmanship? And one of the other men turned over and said, simple, sir. The people at this time that built this cathedral had convictions. We just have opinions. And it's kind of true in our society today that with all the mass media out there, everybody has what? An opinion about what you should do, about how you should live your life, about all kinds of things, what you shouldn't do. Everybody has an opinion and everybody seems very free to offer their what? their opinions, but very few, few people have serious convictions that they just buckle down and don't go with the flow. I mean, Christy and I joke about the fact with all this, the COVID stuff going on that now talking about COVID is not only normal, it's popular that you got to ask, hey, did you get your vaccine? Did your arm hurt? What's going on? Everyone's talking about this. And, uh, you know, it's just everyone has some input on what's going on with it. But as we come as Christians, we need to have conviction. No matter what opinions are out there, there's always going to be opinions to sway us to the right or to the left to get us off track. But our conviction should be in God to have that passion that we've been talking about so that we're not just kind of getting by in life, especially in our spiritual life, but we have that conviction of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God has yet to do. And uh, where our futures actually lie, that conviction that God is with us no matter what. That conviction that God fills us with the Spirit and is the lifter of our head. Uh, he's our, our, our covering, our protector. He's our everything. Because it's that conviction that brings forth that passion in our spiritual life that we so desperately need. The challenge is, as we've all talked about and we all know, is that in our spiritual life, we don't always have that passion, do we? We don't always feel like we just want to, wow, just serve God more and more and more. There are a lot of times we just kind of feel oh, mundane, blasé, kind of like we're going through the motions. And that's where God calls us to feed that spiritual fire, that passion in our lives again, to ignite that so that we can move forward. We've looked at these verses the last couple of weeks, and we'll look at them again real quickly. Uh, reiteration, Matthew 22, Colossians 3, and Romans 12. So Matthew 22, 37 the religious person comes up and asks Jesus, what is the most important command out of everything? And Jesus replies, he says, you shall love the Lord, your God. So there's the relationship. There's the personalness. You shall love the Lord, big L, God in heaven, your God. So you have that relationship with him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, you are to love the Lord your God with everything, to have that conviction and that passion about him that there is nothing more important than serving God. Colossians 3, 23. 
reminds us that whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Now, it's interesting. I don't know if you picked it up the last two weeks, but when the, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all that effort. Colossians says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, right? Strive at it, pursue, push at it with all your heart, but as working for the Lord, not for men. And then Romans 12, 1 tells us once again, never, as a Christian, never be lacking in zeal or passion, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, of course, those are good words to read, right? Okay. Yeah. Kind of, no one's asleep yet. Those are good words to read, but we're meant to live those words, aren't we? But the fact is we don't always because we, sometimes there's, there's those things that happen, those things in life that happen that draw us away from God and get us distracted and get us focused on like our own sphere around us or our own circumstance or situation and keep us from having that passion. And in essence, we allow that fire to go out. Now, as we finish up, I want to share three truths with you about passion. Number one, nothing significant is never done in life without passion. Do you ever see about the, the great victories that are won, like in a war or a great, a great Olympic medalist that gets up there and they're on the podium and they ask a man, you know, you've won seven gold medals, you've broken all the records, how'd you get so passionate? And I'm going, ah, no, I just kind of was bored every day and had nothing else to do, so I just thought I'd do this, right? You don't hear that, you don't see that. To do significant things, we have to have passion. And our lives in Christ have purpose. We were established here for a reason that God has ordained us to do something. But we have to have that passion to accomplish it. Number two, most winners in life are really just ex-losers who got passion. Most winners in life are really just ex-losers who got passion. God uses ordinary people. In fact, when you look back through the Bible... In the Old Testament and even the New Testament, there are some of the strangest people that God uses, right? I mean, there's nothing special really about them. But they got a hold of that spiritual fire in God and salvation and through His Spirit. And they went on to do phenomenal things that we look back and we're amazed. If you read through Hebrews chapter 11, the, the faith chapter, it lists out 20-some people who did great things for God. But when you look at them, they were just normal, ordinary people. People. In fact, a lot of them, if you look back at them, we would initially consider losers because they're hiding out, they're running away from God, they were weak in some form. You know, Moses stuttered, all this stuff going on that we would look at them and say, well, if we want to do something great for God, we've got to have, you know, the, the six foot seven tall guy that's good looking, that he's really muscular, he has great speech, great etiquette. I mean, he's just, you know, Rico Suave, but that's not who God used. God takes ordinary people that the world just kind of looks the other way at, and when they have that passion for God, they do great things. And number three, third thing to remember as we dive into this, the worst bankruptcy in the world is a person who's lost their passion for God. That spiritual bankruptcy just robs you of literally everything, doesn't it? We don't have that passion for God as a Christian. We mentally and intellectually know we should. 
But when that passion is just absent, it's just nothing is exciting. Nothing sparks, nothing. We really don't accomplish much. We just go through the motions. That's why it's so important that we keep the spiritual passion going and keep that fervor for God alive. Now, two months ago, in my great agricultural background, I planted some little seeds. I planted some catnip seeds for, for our, my cats later on, you know, and I put them out there, got this little pack of seed, put them in there, watered them, and I just kind of walked away. Well, they kind of came up, and then I didn't water them enough, and then they got burnt, and so then I bought some more seeds, and I planted those in this little planter again, and I watered them, and I walked away. Well, out of two packages of seed, which you would think you could get a lot of catnip, right? I had two plants that kind of stayed alive, and I think they finally just shriveled up and died. So, I look at that, and I could be really mad and say, well, I got bad seed. That's what it was, wasn't it? I got bad seed. Or I could say, well, no, maybe the potting soil wasn't any good. Maybe it got contaminated or something. But the fact is, those little seedlings didn't grow because I didn't pay attention to them, right? I kind of got them. I kind of went through the motions. I got the seed. I put it in the potting soil. I watered it. But I didn't care for it. I just kind of walked away. And the fact is, if those seeds not growing, it wasn't bad seed. It wasn't bad potting soil. It wasn't bad conditions. It's that I didn't nurture those seeds. Well, our spiritual life is very close to that, isn't it? God gives us that passion and salvation and forgiveness and grace and mercy and the Holy Spirit. But if we just kind of put our spiritual life on autopilot and think, well, it'll just kind of grow by itself. That passion fades, doesn't it? Now, a lot of people will sit there and they'll complain and they'll say, well, you know, if that pastor was more exciting that I listened to, then, uh, you know, I'd have more fire. If he only talked less instead of longer, I'd be more excited about church. Well, if the Bible only had like, you know, little things that popped out to me that were important, I'd read the Bible more. Well, if, 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 if. Christians that have lost their passion for God have all kinds of excuses, but according to the Bible, the reason they've lost their passion is because they put their spiritual life on autopilot and expected it just to grow, right? We've all done that, right? We get busy with things, we get distracted, we're just like, well, if I just do this, just it's kind of like being in, in junior high. Any of you ever do this like, like I did? You, you sleep on that biology book, so hopefully somehow during the night, by osmosis, it just sinks into your head for the test the next morning, you know? And all you do is you wake up with a stiff neck, right which doesn't help on the quiz at all we can't just go on autopilot as christians we have to feed that passion and that's what we've been looking at so we've looked at seven passion killers actually we've looked at five and uh, we'll look at the last ones today and then we want to look at a couple things to do to feed that passion so here are the five passion killers that we've looked at to be on guard that we don't let our passion be stolen because of them one an unbalanced schedule working too much or being too lazy. Number two, an unused talent, not using the gifts that God has given us. Number three, an unconfessed sin, and we hold that in and we don't deal with that before God and others. Number four, an unresolved conflict, that when we have that conflict with other people, that jealousy and anger, we can't have passion in there. And number five, an unsupported lifestyle, meaning that when we're out of fellowship, 
and we don't have that support of the church and those around us, we fizzle. Now, number six. Are you ready? Kendall's ready. Good man. An unclear purpose. You ever forget your purpose in life? You ever wonder what your purpose is right now? I mean, it's that age-old question of, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Do I really matter? We all ask those questions at various points in our life. But the Bible tells us that God has instilled us with gifts to use for the benefit of others, to share the gospel, to be Christ to others, to do ministry, whether it's in our own household or in the community. God has given us purpose. When we lose sight of that and we start thinking, what I do really doesn't make a difference in the world. Nobody cares. Nobody really listens to me. Why even try? Because it just, what? Doesn't matter. Right? We've all been in that place. We read in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes to do three things. The thief being the devil. He comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. But then it goes on and says that God came that we might have life abundantly. So here's this abundant life that we can have, this passion for God. But here is the enemy of God saying, I'm going to steal, if I can, what God's given them. I'm going to kill it, if I can, or I'm just going to destroy it. Satan is constantly trying to distract us from living for God. He's constantly trying to get our mind off of our purpose and make us feel worthless, like we just don't matter, because... When we feel and think we just don't matter, we almost make a self-fulfilled prophecy, don't we? And we end up doing things that we're like, well, see, I told you so. That was just stupid, and I just do stupid things. We don't think things through, and we're not close to God. Satan wants to distract us from that. He wants us to feel isolated, lonely. He wants us to feel like we don't matter, like what we do doesn't have any importance, whether it's at home or in the church or anywhere. He wants us to feel that way. He wants us to lose sight of our purpose in serving God, doesn't he? And we're constantly under attack for that. Basically, the devil just wants you to believe you're worthless. But Jesus, on the other hand, wants you to believe something else, that your life matters that you're important, that you were created by design and intent, that you are different than everybody else, that you're needed, that you integrally fit in a specific place in the church to fill that void that only you can. God wants us to know how important we are in the fact that he said, this is how much I love you. We talked about the sign of the cross where Jesus stretched out his hands and said this much and gave his life for us. Fact is, if we were not important, especially important to God, what's the purpose of Christ coming to live and die for our salvation? There's no point in it, is it? There's no purpose in it. But the fact is, God did come to redeem us, to forgive us, to restore that relationship with us, because God is passionate about us, and therefore wants us to be passionate about Him. He wants us to remember to have that purpose that we are not just living for the world, but we are living for who? For God, in his good glory, in his will, in his purpose, going forward as ambassadors for Christ. 
we have that great purpose in life and however God has designed that, that God puts us in the crossroads of the world to interact with other people, to share the gospel message with them and to share the love of God with them. You see, it's really not, as we've talked so many times about, your circumstance, your situation, or your feeling. It's about knowing your purpose for life, to have that passion, because purpose and passion go together, right? We talked about the, the winners are actually just losers who found passion. When you know you have a purpose to do to accomplish something, and God is with you to do that, it gets exciting. The comic strip Hobbes wrote about passion, and he said this, he says, Passion is waking up in the morning, wherever you are, and bounding out of bed, just because you know there's something out there that you love to do, that you believe in, that God made you for, and that you're good at. Something that's bigger than you are, and you can hardly wait to get at it again. It's something that you'd rather be doing more than anything else, and you wouldn't give it up for all the money in the world. Well, that sounds exciting, right? Y'all had that passion when you bounded out of bed this morning going, I can't wait to go to church, huh? Because there's popcorn. <laughs> right? But most of us, when we wake up in the morning, how do we get out of bed? Oh. <laughs> and the older we get, the more the groanings happen, right? In fact, the older we get, we don't even really get out of bed. We kind of roll and fall <laughs> out of bed and hopefully land on our feet. Then we got to work to get up, right? And then we got to like, oh, got to make it downstairs. <laughs> it's got to be coffee somewhere. I hope I set the automatic coffee maker. But to have that passion that right now, if you think about it, God is working in you even as we speak and think. God is speaking to your mind through the Holy Spirit. God is equipping you for something later today. God is preparing you for what you will be doing even now. That as we, we've shared so often, nobody here is here by accident, right? Now Richard always says, well, I'm here because my wife made me come. But there's a bigger purpose for that, right? God is working in you and I right now to prepare us for what he has for us to do. Now, we don't feel that like we think, well, if God was working with me, maybe I'd have some tingle or something, right? Now, that's just your legs going to sleep. But it doesn't feel always like we're doing something for God. But when we are seeking God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, we're looking for that zeal and we're going after God and we're feeding that spiritual passion, God is working in us. Irrelevant of circumstance or situation and gives us that purpose. Look at the Christians in the past who have been gone through the Holocaust or have gone through the prisoner of war camps and when you talk to them they talk about they had to make it out because they had that passion that God gave them their life for a reason. That their life was not meaningless and they had to make it through that. Your life and my life in Christ have meaning and purpose and importance. Never buy into the fact of what the devil tries to sell you that you're insignificant or worthless. Because when God is with you, nothing is impossible, and you and I are important because of him in us. So remember your purpose. Number seven, a passion killers, an unnourished spirit 
will kill your passion, right? If we're not feeding our soul with the goodness of God, like we feed our bodies with the goodness of the world, we will become spiritually malnourished, right? We have to feed ourselves. We come to a point in the beginning of salvation where God surrounds us with other believers that hopefully feed us spiritually. It's kind of like that baby toddler stage, those new Christians. You're like, well, how do I do this? And what does God say about this? And well, what about this? And what about that? God surrounds us with others in the church to feed us spiritually in that infant stage of life. But then as we mature in God, we have to start feeding ourselves, right? I mean, any of you ever raise or want to have a child that is fully functional but can't feed themselves and change their own diapers at age 42? You want to have that person that you know they could do it, but because they haven't grown up in Christ, they still need you to spoon feed them and change their clothes. When you look at them, you know there's nothing wrong with them. They're fully functional, but they just haven't matured. That wouldn't be good, would it? God calls us to a certain point to get to that stage where we become functional in ourselves spiritually, that we are feeding ourselves personally to grow in godliness. That we're not just dependent on other people to grow us in godliness, but we take that ownership ourselves and we say, I desire to seek God and serve God. I don't need someone else to feed me. It's nice when they do, but I desire to grow in godliness, so I'm going to pursue God and seek God and find God. And God's promise is when we seek him intently, we will what? Find him. But we have to seek God. We have to take ownership that it's our responsibility to spiritually feed ourselves at this stage in our Christian life and to grow in God. Whether that's being in fellowship, whether that's having worship music on during the week, whether that's being in Bible studies, whether that's just spending time in God's word, however that is, we need to find ways to feed our spirit, just like we do with physical food. So now here we kind of turn a corner because we've talked about all the passion killers that we need to be aware of, right? Now we want to look at some things to do to fill our spirit because we've talked about number seven is this unnourished spirit in God that makes us spiritually malnourished. So how do we feed our spirit to make us fully nourished in God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now we stop looking at what we don't do, and we fill that with what we do do. Remember growing up in school, I think it's still the same, I haven't seen it for a while, but you had the, the, the food pyramid, remember that? You had your five basic food groups, Cheerios, marshmallows, chocolate, and soda, and what was the other one? Sugar, right? Y'all remember studying the five basic food groups that you're supposed to have so many portions of each of these to make you well-rounded and healthy. And some of us took it a little bit too literal because we are well-rounded and too healthy because we consume too much. Where they said have two portions of dairy a day, we thought they said 20. Where they said have one portion of meat, we thought they said 10. So we just ate and ate and ate. We have five basic food groups to nourish our spirit to grow in godliness. So here they are. Number one, worship. God wants to be the center of our life. And in that fact, we need to worship him. In fact, we are told to worship nothing else, to have no other idols because God is a jealous God. 
God doesn't want us putting anybody or anything in his place. It's that close, intimate relationship that God is saying, I will share this person with no one else. This person is fully mine, and God wants us to be fully his. Exodus 31.14 tells us this, Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. And when we observe the Sabbath, that means we make time, we make that day to worship God, don't we? We still worship God throughout the week, but we take one day, like we are right now, we make that holy set aside for God, and we make sure that we're in a place to worship, to be in fellowship, to be obedient, to hear the word of God, to have prayer, and to praise. We need to worship. Remember two weeks ago we talked about the image of worship and in, in what we do? Worship actually fills us as we lift praises to God, because when we praise God with our hands lifted high, it's that form of a funnel, right? As praises go out of us up to God, our arms are stretched out like a funnel, and what do you do with the funnel? You pour stuff into it. If our arms and praise are reached out to God like this, what is God doing? He's filling us with His Spirit and trickling that down and concentrating it into our life. That's where we get recharges in that first Christian food group of worship. In fact, Psalm 22.3 speaks to the fact that God indwells or inhabits the praise of his people. It's almost like God says, when you're praising me, I'm going to jump and join you and be right there, right? We need to worship. God calls us to worship. In fact, God commands us to worship. The first thing we need to do when we are down and out and realizing we are losing our spiritual passion is to begin to worship God. Because once again, what happens in worship? When we worship God, we take our whole focus off of who? Us, and we turn it to God. We take our focus off of me and my circumstances and what I'm going through to being like, God, you are majestic. You are awesome. We get a bigger picture in our life because we worship God. We come into his majesty, into that realm of glory, and we see how great God is. It's what the Bible talks about in that Shekinah glory of God. It's like when Moses went up to, to get the Ten Commandments and he came down, that Shekinah glory of God was glowing at him so much that it scared the people. And they're like, dude, cover your face up, man. You were like glowing, right? Because he was there in God's presence worshiping him. As God tells him, this is holy ground. In other words, God is saying, this is where you worship me. And when we worship, that focus is taken off of us and what we're going through and giving that to God in praise and glory and saying, God, nothing matters but you. And actually, I've finally come to a point where I realize you can handle everything I'm going through. I just ask you to fill me. That's why worship helps restore that passion. Focus comes off of us and on the God, and it's a greater and greater picture the more that we worship. Number two, food group, fellowship. God wants us to learn to love each other. Well, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? Richard's back there going, well, I don't like John because he's shorter than me and I don't, he looks funny, right? We are called to learn to love each other. Um, most of you know I like cooking and I like watching cooking shows on, on uh, TV and they had one on yesterday morning as I, I was doing some cooking in the kitchen and kind of half listening to the cooking show and it was an Indian couple. And uh, the chef was 
at their house. They were making a meal for her, kind of, you know, authentic Indian food. And she was asking them about how they met and everything. And it was really interesting because it imitates what the, often happened around the time of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament was that she said, well, we were introduced to each other. We didn't know each other. We were introduced to each other by our families and they arranged for us to be married. And the chef obviously hadn't heard this before as they're making all the meals. And she's like, well, how did that work out? She said, the wife said, well, first we were introduced to each other. We got to meet each other. Then we had to make a decision to learn to love each other because we didn't know each other. So here's this totally other different person that the families arranged the kids together and say, hey, you two are going to have a happy love life together. Now, it wasn't the American way where you have all the, the, the butterflies and the happy feelings because you're in love, right? They just met. They were total strangers. But our comments where we had to each decide to learn to love each other. When God brings us into the church, he flat out tells us that he fills the church with different types of people, right? People that are different than us, as he does that on purpose. One, to make the church whole with our different giftedness. But two, that we would learn to love each other like God loves us. Remember Peter struggling with speaking to Gentiles? until God finally spoke to him with that, that cloud or that, that blanket coming down and he's asleep on the rooftop and it has all this food in it that, that a good Hebrew, a good Jew was not supposed to eat. And God tells him what? Peter, kill and eat. And he says, Lord, nothing, un, nothing unholy has ever touched my lips. And God's like, if I deem it holy, it's holy, so get over it, right? And what Peter realizes that as he goes and he speaks to the non-Jews, the non-Hebrews, is that God was basically telling him, you are to love those that you have been taught not to love. You are to learn to love them and to bring the gospel to them. Isn't that what Jesus did as he walked among the earth? I mean, he went to lepers, to prostitutes, he went to rich, he went to poor, he went to those who were hurting, the lame. He went to them when others wouldn't. Jesus would go to the unloved where the world just shut them out and rejected them. And that's where God calls us in fellowship. One of the great things about it is learning to get along with each other, especially if we are different personalities. Of saying, Lord, show me how to love this person and to appreciate their differences because otherwise we just clash like this. And that's what the world wants us to do, right? And God says, you will be known by your love for one another. That's the trade, one of the trademarks of being a Christian. That's the, the neon stamp that as we love each other, the world sees that impact that that's pretty amazing. I can't get along with my own family and all these different people get along great and love each other. That's crazy. And it sends a message. Besides that, Hebrews 10.25 commands us to be in fellowship, um, and it doesn't depend on how we feel. Anybody in here ever have a job? Maybe once, right? If you didn't feel like going to work, did they give you a free pass and say, oh, don't worry about it today. Just, just come into work when you feel like coming to work. How would that go over? It doesn't. It's like, no, we're employing you. It's not about how you feel. You need to be here at work. 
And as God commands us in Hebrews 10 not to forsake the fellowship of meeting together, what he's saying is, it doesn't matter if you feel like going to church or getting up today, I'm commanding you to make one day holy and to be in fellowship. To come back in touch with me. Because it's so easy when we're out of fellowship to keep being what? Out of fellowship. The more we're absent, the easier it is to be absent the next time. And then to start making excuses. So God says, it doesn't matter how you feel or what you think, I want you to be in fellowship, to learn to love each other, and to come together in my glory. Number three, third food group to feed your spirit, discipleship. In other words, God wants you and I to cultivate spiritual maturity in other people, to take what God has given us and to pass that on to others. Now, it can come in various forms. We think of discipleship. We think, well, we got to have a special meeting with you know, another person, and i got to spend all this time with them. Well, let me ask you this. Anybody have a family or friends? Anybody work with others? Maybe discipleship is right there. If you've raised a child, you are discipling that child in how to grow. If you're married or you have a, have a, have a, a boyfriend or girlfriend, you are in discipleship by how you treat them and how you act, right? If you're at work, you are in discipleship to be Christ at that workplace, to not take shortcuts, to not cheat, to not lie, but to set that example of what a Christian is like, to work hard for that employer because you're really doing it for God's glory, right? We are to be in discipleship everywhere we are around to pass on that maturity that God has given us. It doesn't have to be a formal thing where you hook up guy to guy, girl to girl, and you kind of walk through with someone, although you can do that. Discipleship happens where you live and where you're at. And we need to keep that mindful that when we're together, we are doing discipleship with each other, even here, right? We share how our week is. We intercede with each other in prayer for each other. We talk about what's going on. We share the goodness of God. We sing and worship together. We are in discipleship with one another right here and right now. Number four, we need to be an active ministry. We need to have some form of ministry that we are giving back to the church. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. It tells us that as each one of us has received a special gift from God, in other words, it's like Christmas. God has given us a spiritual gift, a spiritual talent. It goes on to say this, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So God says, I'm giving you a gift to use in ministry to bless others. So the question is simple. What's your ministry here? What do you do to give to others, to serve others, to bless the church, to build it up? Because God desires that we are in ministry. We talk about Jesus in the last three years of his life going into ministry. And what did Jesus do in that ministry? Well, he healed. He fed thousands with nothing. He spoke the gospel truth. He went to those who needed to hear the gospel. Those last three years of his life weren't about him focusing on him. He was in ministry to share the gospel with others and to bless others and to 
bring others to the goodness of God, to show the world what God could do by healing the spirit and the body and what the witness was. We need to be an active ministry. If we're just storing up all the goodness of God for us, it doesn't do any good. That's not why God has blessed us with spiritual gifts and the ability to do things for other people. The mindset of Christ in those last three years of his ministry was to heal and bring salvation and bless others. We talked about last week in communion how Jesus even put on the, the imagery, the, the symbols, the clothes of the lowest servant in the house to serve others, right? To have our spirit active and that passion for God, we need to be looking for ways to serve one another in godliness and to use that gift and the talent, whatever it is God has given you and I, to bless those in the church. So the question is simply this, where are you serving? What are you doing for the glory of God? And whatever it is, do it as unto the Lord, not as unto other people, right? Serve in that passion to give God glory. The other thing that happens in ministry and serving is very interesting. It's the same thing that happens in worship. When we're focused on ministry and serving others, where is our focus not on? Our three favorite people, me, me, myself, and I, right? Our focus is not on us again. It's on what we can do to bless others. Do you see the message of what God is doing here? Part of the whole message to keep our spirit a passion active for God in serving God is realizing the focus shouldn't be on us. Because we no longer belong to ourselves. We've been bought with the price, the Bible says. And now everything we do is unto God. Us died in that spiritual salvation. And now we live, as the Bible says, for God. And when we do ministry, our focus is not on us. It's on serving others. What can I do to bless them? What can I do to heal them? What can I do to help them? What can I do to support them? It's on blessing others. Final one, fifth food group item is this, mission. You are on a mission for God, right? You know that you really are? I mean, mission kind of encapsulates all that we've been talking about, that we realize that part of our importance and our purpose in this world is to be on that mission for God to tell others about God and his love and to have the same salvation that we have. Nowhere in the Bible does it really tell you to shut up about God, does it? In fact, it tells us just the opposite, to speak out about God, to praise God, to worship God. In baptism, we have a public showing of our faith that we have died to ourselves and raised with Christ. In marriage, there's a public showing of God ruling over our marriage, taking uh, the husband and the wife and God and intertwining that as a strong cord, a rope. Communion is the public showing of, of remembering what God has done for us and our coming to God's table to serve Him. Worship is a public showing of our praise to God. Bible study is that public showing of our desire to know more about God. Tithing is that showing of our willingness to trust God. And serving others at church is that public showing of our Christ-likeness and mission is fulfilling that public purpose 
to tell others about Christ. Remember the end of Matthew? Jesus says, go into all the earth and make disciples and share the word of God. We are to go out and to share that, to be in that mission group. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 4, last verse of the day. Acts 4, verse 15 and 20. We have John and Peter here, and they've been out proclaiming the goodness of God. They're on that mission to give God glory and to share the gospel message with others. And some of the religious leaders come together and tell them they need to be quiet. And here's what they say. Acts 4, verse 15. But when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men, being John and Peter? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so it will not be spread any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in Jesus' name. And when they summoned the two men, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now here's the kicker. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The world wants to shut us up about God. Remember, we started this, this series on keeping our passion for God ignited about it's acceptable to be passionate about anything in the world, sports, politics, news, coin collecting, whatever it is. It's easy to be passionate about anything except what? God and our relationship with him. When we start sharing about how passionate we are, God, people get that uneasy look and they start kind of wandering away, don't they? And they don't want us to talk about that. Where the Bible is counterculture and God says, no, you share my passion. You're here to be on a mission for God. And it's not a covert 007 mission. God wants us to be out there in that army for him, proclaiming the gospel and going forward and sharing the gospel and however we can do that. Now, as a church, we do that various ways. We share with the PRC, we share with the Rescue Mission, we share with Operation Christmas Child, we share with others, we share with each other, and hopefully we carry that out to the world that needs to hear the gospel and share with them. We need to be on mission. Spiritual passion is that conviction of our relationship with Jesus and salvation that literally compels us to go forward for God's glory, to build up treasure in heaven and not on earth, to look not at ourselves and our circumstance and what we're going through, but to look at what God has for us and his greatness and his goodness and what he would have us to do. It's that conviction in our heart to serve God with all our heart, all our strength, and all our might, to keep that zeal for God going. So last thing and we close. When you walk out of here in church, you go back into what we call the mission field, right? We go back to where the battle is. And part of the battle is as soon as we leave here, there are so many distractions that Satan's going to throw at you to try and get your focus off of beating that spiritual fire and on something that's going on in your life and your circumstance. It's going to happen. We need to be on guard against that. Not to look to the right or the left, but to keep our focus on God. And then we need to be doing these five things 
to seek God, to keep that spiritual passion going. We need to be in worship. We need to be in fellowship. We need to have some form of discipleship going on. We need to have a ministry that we're actively doing on a regular basis to others. And then we need to have a mission that although we have a ministry in the church, now we have a mission outside of the church to share the gospel. We've got to keep doing things to keep that spiritual passion and fire going, don't we? It's not a feeling. It's a conviction. And it's a fact that I know, one, what God has done for me. Number two, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. And because I know those two things, those facts, I also know, number three, that God has me here to use me, to bless others, as the Bible calls, that we are a vessel for his purpose. And again, we remember the thing about a vessel is a vessel doesn't tell the master craftsman what to make them, do they? Whatever purpose he deems them for. So we need to remember that God has us here for that purpose and that reason. So I hope through all this that you allow God to ignite that passion in you. That you take on that ownership to say, Lord, I need to draw close to you. And to quit being distracted by all the stuff out there. God, draw me into your presence again. Remind me of your goodness. Remind me of your love, your grace, your forgiveness. God, instill in me that Holy Spirit overflowing. As the Bible talks about that stream of living water just overflowing and bubbling out. Let God instill that in you once again. As we come to serve God together and to give him glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we just thank you and praise you for all that you have already done and what you're doing now as you speak to us in the moment and all that you're doing to go before us and prepare a place for us. Lord, we pray in like manner that as you have come and served us, that we would serve you by serving others. Lord, that we'd keep the spiritual passion alive and we would remember, Lord, you not only in communion but in every aspect of our life to know that our lives are in your hands and our life is meant to be poured out as a as an offering to you to give you glory that lord our lives are no longer our own but our lives are meant to be lived for you we pray that in action we would glorify you in doing that reignite the passion within us lord and remind us of our relationship with you and who we are in you. And in that, may you receive glory in Jesus' name.